Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry, sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. Don't say sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues. I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad. I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we definitely know what tacos are and we enjoy them frequently. I am Karen Peterson, joined by the amazing Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Yes, I do know what a taco is. I even know I even know the difference between like kind of the white people style tacos and Mexican tacos. <laughs> have you ever made tacos? I have made tacos many times. I've never made my own tortillas. I do have to say that like that's not something that, you know, I I attempt because I don't <laughs> I don't know why you would necessarily, although it doesn't seem terribly difficult, but that's why yeah. you would cuz it's not terribly <laughs> difficult and they are very delicious when they're fresh right off the the right out of the oil but um I'm honestly for... i think i'm gonna try actually now, now that i've seen because because i now, now i'm like oh that's not that difficult like i don't know why i would think that that it's just kind of corn yeah. smushed together right like yeah why not mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> um for anybody who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about uh we are referring to the fact that this week on the great british bake-off or the great british baking show whichever version you like to refer to it as um they did mexican week for some reason and uh it became very clear that a whole bunch of amateur home cooks in britain have never even beheld mexican food before uh for their technical challenge they had to make tacos and some of them didn't even know what a taco was basically um again the woman (laughs) the woman from like malaysia seemed to have a better idea of what she was doing and in fact even talked about the fact that she really liked mexican food etc and seemed to actually know what she was doing than like all of the white british people i was just like i mean are we surprised (laughs) yeah but it's just like but she's further you know if we're talking about this Uh further from mexico but she's also probably the most traveled too yes yes, um yeah but it just we were seeing all kinds of things like the poor woman who was trying to make guacamole or as she called it guacamolo and um attempted to peel an avocado like a potato and that happened also paul hollywood one of the judges called it i still cannot get over this pico Gallo, not even gallo like gallo i could kind of understand because there's a lot of people who apparently don't understand that two l's make a yes sound but even though they say tortilla without a co- <laughs> without a concern <laughs> yes i'm referring to you okay it's just like la la rona feels like it's it, it's more euphemous in english okay <laughs> that's the only that's the only reason leave me alone i am very white <laughs> There is nothing connected to Mexico in any way or Spanish or any form of Spanish in any way. I admit that I am peak white person, which is why it is even crazier in some ways that watching the British Bake Off, I was like, you are too white. You people are all too white. 
you know that I love you. <laughs> and that is why I tease. But uh, it was much worse hearing him say Pico de Calo. Like, I actually rewound it because I was like, did I hear that correctly? Yes, yes, I did. But also, no, I did not <laughs> because that is not how you say it. I did feel bad for the one guy because they were trying to make Pico de Gallo and... um there's there really is this thing where like 30 percent of the population when they eat cilantro it tastes like soap and one guy in the group had that experience so he's trying his pico de gallo to see if it tastes okay and it just tastes like soap <laughs> poor guy yeah you can't really tell it's like did i do this right it's just yeah. like, it tastes like soap yeah i my i think my my father has i've known a couple of people that like they just cannot eat cilantro yeah. because particularly fresh cilantro it seems like um other forms are like dried cilantro or even um the coriander um Mm -hmm. which are from the same plant yeah yeah is is fine but or better not not as like intense but there seems to be something about fresh cilantro in particular so you can't really tell like if you're like Mm. oh this doesn't this tastes bad to me you know you can't there's right. nothing else there's nothing you could do about it it's literally your taste buds yeah and that is like that is a genetic thing and yeah people can't help it so that that's that, so i felt bad for that guy like he couldn't tell if he was doing it right or not but anyway it was it was very interesting watching this experience i still do not understand why their technical challenge wasn't flan which is very difficult to make and something that a lot of people probably wouldn't be familiar with and also required the use of an oven and when you're on the great british baking show uh it should you know require baking i seriously i was like i swear if i see one person put a tortilla in the oven i'm going to lose my mind luckily that didn't happen (laughs) well and and on the well and they also you do have to say they did um i'm gonna pronounce it incorrectly pendles pendulce pendulce um uh, they they did that, you know, and a lot of them, a lot of them did well on those. Some some people didn't, et cetera. Uh, and, and so at, le- at least that, I was just like, okay, that's mm-hmm. like an actual, actual Mexican bake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we watched it, when I just knew this episode was coming and I, I knew ahead of time about the taco challenge, I actually was just like, why are they not doing Pandal say as the, as the yeah. technical, especially because some of them did struggle with the consistency and stuff like that. But watching i was like okay well at least they did get that in there so yeah yeah mm-hmm. and they did look like pendles say like i've yeah. had those i'm just like okay that looks like what it should be <laughs> right yeah they had some familiarity because they got to research that and plan it ahead of time because and then one of the things that was fun about that was they got to play with the flavors and stuff where mm-hmm. the technical challenge it's just you're going to make all the same thing and we're telling you what what to do so yeah, yeah. so they got Although, to be a little bit creative several, several people did point out that trying to make a tiered tre leche cake oh my gosh i know is is like i i mean even i i, I saw a a mexican a mexican commentator mexican-american commentator on on tiktok i think being like what is happening <laughs> yeah. it's just like yeah like the whole point and they even were just like oh this is really difficult to do it's just like yeah because it's tiered and it's soaked like right. that's it's the not whole... supposed to stand up like that <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's supposed to be like wet mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shouldn't stack. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's a bit wonky. It's just like, yes, Paul, it is a bit wonky because I fucking soaked it yeah. in milk. Yep, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. But then there were just like other little things too, like the guy who wanted to do his like a like a temple and 
And he's he was like, yeah, it's like a Mayan temple. And Paul says, don't you mean Aztec? And he's like, well, they're basically the same. Yeah, not not really high on the cultural sensitivity no. thing. This, this is something you know. And we are going to talk about other things, by the way, on this yeah. podcast. But this or is maybe that, we won't. <laughs> this is something that has come up a couple of times on the Great British Bake Off, and particularly in recent years, where they've done like you know, I, one year they did Japanese bakes, but they kept on adding things that were not demonstrably not Japanese. So it was more like this pan asian bakes yeah um and and things like that and on the one hand you kind of like well it's good to kind of depart from the eurocentric sort of style of baking because so much of the stuff is you know british french italian basically right sometimes spanish mixed in there but that's pretty much it um german maybe and and so it's nice that they're like oh there are actually you know baking traditions across the world that's good all right good mm-hmm. but but then at the same time they do these weird things to it and it's like it's it really is like British imperialism again. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, oh, we're going to do this, but we're going to do it for like a white British audience, you know? And we're also going British. to do it as badly as possible. <laughs> yeah, and, and so so it's like, like you say, you know, there, there's just a lack of, I don't know, lack of knowledge or lack of respect or something going on. And it, and as as I was saying before we started recording, it's just like the, fa- the fact that there are, that Americans, like white Americans, are going like this is insane mm-hmm. and disrespectful when we're talking about Mexico is yeah. like do you have any idea how offensive you have to be in order for a bunch of white americans to be like this is a little much mm-hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> like we're doing better on this one guys i'm not going to say that i know mexican cooking or anything like that but i do know better than that <laughs> exactly and i think cuz at first i was mad like really mad when i was watching and then i felt bad for them i was like imagine going your whole life and never having had a taco you know like that's so sad i feel bad for them and then the more i started thinking about it again the more i got annoyed not about what they didn't know or what foods they hadn't experienced it was the way that this whole thing was played off and of course this is for mostly a british audience but it's really popular here in the states too but it's the way that this this lack of knowledge about another culture that they decide to highlight on the show was played for like oh look how charming it is oh she's peeling that like a potato oh he doesn't know how to say this oh they're talking about that and and it just it it was the fact it was total lack of sensitivity to an entire country that was where i was just like you know no i may not be mad at the individual contestants for what they know but i'm a little bit mad at the show and the producers for um thinking this is cute yeah it 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 feels very um it's stereotyping it's performative it's it's like uh and i mean you know opening the whole thing with with the the two hosts wearing sombreros and ponchos and Mm -hmm. shit like that like like all all of it just like are you fucking kidding me like you know that this shouldn't fly well and then yeah well and then peru saying that the hallmark of mexican cooking is color i was just like oh my gosh <laughs> it's like no it's about the flavor <laughs> like oh my gosh you know it's a, so those kinds of things were where i was just like no nah, you know what i'm not gonna give them a pass on this episode they need some more yeah. they need some sensitivity training really badly yeah i i do i'm one of one of my good friends who who lived in mexico for a while um and and like really she she's 
she really like loves Mexican cooking. I am terrified of when she actually watches this. <laughs> and I know that she's watching the show because she's talked about it and she loves baking. So I just like, oh, I'm so scared. I'm going to get so many text messages. <laughs> it's like, do you see this? Just like, yes, I, I, did, I did see it. I did see it. I feel personally responsible for this in some way. <laughs> yes. Um, so going from one unpleasant topic to a much more unpleasant topic. <laughs> um, so Brad Pitt sucks and, uh, we're going to have to talk about it. Apparently I'm really, this one, you know, you said it best the other day, uh, I think in our, in our, uh, Slack conversation, just that it's like, all of them, all of the ones that we've, you know, liked for so long are turning out to just be garbage. Please, Keanu, do not break our hearts. But anyway, um, yeah, so a lot of people are aware of the flight in 2016, the infamous flight, private jet, um, that involves some kind of altercation between Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt and apparently a couple of the children. We didn't ever know the details because those were not really shared. Um, just the story that I had heard, I don't know about you, but the story I had heard was that he had drank too much and got a little bit physical um, and was also yelling a lot. And that was kind of it. And then it just, you know, sort of died down. But right after that, she filed for divorce and they split up and then they've been arguing over custody of the kids. Well, uh, this week there was a custody hearing, I guess. And so some information came out and now we have more details about what actually happened on that flight. And it was, it was like, what we heard was, was accurate, but very incomplete. So um, it involved him verbally and physically attacking her it sounds like a couple of the kids jumped in to try to help mom and uh oh no one of the children who was somewhere between eight and 15 that's a pretty big uh possibility because all six kids were on the plane with them one of the kids jumped in and tried to help and then brad attacked the kid and that was where it got really bad so mm -hmm. um yeah oh he also poured beer on angelina and beer and red wine on the children so yeah it just it was just it was so much worse than we ever knew which of course it was but you know now this is out in the open now we know about mm -hmm. it and um i i don't even know what to say about this <laughs> well it's thoughts? It's it's one of those. So this this took place in like 20, 2016. 2016, yeah, yeah. And that this, and I think that a lot of people have talked about this being really notable, not just because this is an FBI investigation, right? Right. Um, Which it has to be because they were in the air, so yeah, the airspace things. Um, but it was it was serious enough that like she she was actually like okay, something has to happen. So and and she she almost immediately files for divorce, mm -hmm. right? So this so whatever happened, and you know, and you're always just like, well, only the people who are on the plane really know what happened. Um, but whatever happened, it was bad enough that she was just like, that's it, we're done. Um, and and particularly, I think 
you know, I, I was about I was about to say it's just like, well, the worst part is that he hurt the children. It's just like, no, the worst part is, is all of this. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. He's obviously he obviously got physical, got physically violent and verbally abusive with his with his wife. He got physically violent and verbally abusive with his kids. Um, I think that this was the same incident where at least one of the children had had talked about, you know, no, it's not her. It's you. It's your fault. Right. And that he had been accusing her of like the turning the kids against him and things mm-hmm. like that. And that one of the kids was just basically like, she, she's not doing anything. This is all on you. And that that's when he began, he got like physically uh, violent. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's disappointing. And it's also one of those things that, um, you know, we, we talk, you know, all of these men, right. And now more people are talking about, well, let, let's talk about all of the things that Brad Pitt did around the divorce with Jennifer Aniston. You know, and um, and and him taking up with Angelina Jolie, and I even remember that. And there was all of this, you know, like, oh, it's Jen versus it's it's Jen versus um, versus Angie, and it's yeah. like, oh my god, what's going on? There? And it's just like, no, it's what about fucking Brad Pitt? Like, he's the one that's doing this. He's the one that had an affair. He's the one that broke up his marriage. Like, does does Angelina Jolie have have some responsibility there? Of course she does. But she's not the only one who has responsibility. I remember it being framed as like her being this vicious homewrecker mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. You're like, you don't know what was going on behind the scenes. You don't know how he was behaving either with Jennifer Aniston or with Angelina Jolie. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I still have a friend who won't watch any movies that she's in, Angelina, because she blames Angie for the whole breakup. And it's like, okay, first of all, that was a really long time ago. Second of all, it has nothing to do with you. Get over it. Third of all, there's so much more to that story. <laughs> like, geez. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I think it's very indicative of the way that we talked about, right? These kinds of breakups and stuff like that. And we have, and the, the culture has shifted very much, but and there's still this like this attitude just like well so at some level it's her fault at some level it's her responsibility right yeah. and it's it's quite obvious that this this is this is a man who's willing to be violent with people who's willing to like physically and verbally mistreat people mm-hmm. um and and you know i don't know how you can defend that and i'm sorry and and i know that ro- roles should not should not be mixed with uh with the people who perform them etc but I keep on going back to the, the internet thirst over when when Pitt was playing a character who literally murders his wife. Like yep. it is. And everything about that role is like, if you look at it now from this context of knowing all this stuff about him, it's all just like, yeah, no, I was right to hate that, you know? Yeah. Is it isn't he hot? It's just like he hurts women. That's mm-hmm. what he does. Like, that's what that character does. Gleefully. Um, yeah. And and we're applauding it, right? And and there's just something really gross about that. And we ha- and I have the same kind of feeling with all of this stuff coming out. And of course, there's going to be a back and forth. And there already is people saying like, "Well, this was years ago. You know, why isn't this? Why isn't that?" It's like, obviously, one of one of the things that both of them have obviously done has been to try to protect the children from being involved in all of this mm-hmm. um, too too much, right? For being in the public eye, right? They're not disclosing which child uh, he hurt, etc. And, but at a certain point, you're just like, this is, this becomes about the children. This becomes about him being violent with the children. He's got 50, 50 custody of them. Um, is he still behaving like this? Right. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of questions there. And part of the reason this all comes back now is because, um, the judge 
who originally gave them the 50-50 custody. Uh, that was a private hearing. There was um, some inappropriate stuff that happened there. And Angelina was just like, yeah, I think that we need to revisit that. And so she finally won. And um, so that means that they're going to revisit the custody arrangement, which is good. Good for her and good for the kids, too. I mean, I've seen kids in situations where, um, like, I have a friend who went through a really bitter divorce and her daughters were old enough to to know like they have eyes they have ears they can see what's happening and they didn't you know they didn't want to go with dad they didn't trust dad they saw what he was doing to mom and uh and he would try to tell like try to tell anybody who would listen oh well she's trying to turn the kids against me it's like no they fucking see what you're doing they see it for themselves it's moms don't have to turn dads uh, kids against their dads dads are good at doing that themselves you know or the abuser so um yeah so there's that there's also the fact that some of this stuff is coming out now because brad also just apparently is stupid and can't let things go um because one of the things that this all hinges on is that they owned a winery together and after she filed for divorce she wanted to sell the winery and um she wanted well she wanted wanted to sell her part she wanted out she didn't want to be involved in business with him she also left plan b their um production company oh no sorry i think that was jennifer anyway she got out of anything that they were connected together and um anyway so uh she so she wanted out he didn't want her to because he thought that having her name unattached was going to tank the the value and so he tried to fight on letting her leave and um this is one of the things that happened so that's been an ongoing challenge he like filed a lawsuit against her for defamation because one of the reasons that she said she wanted out was some of this abusive stuff and anyway he's just it's like some of this is he he literally i mean all of it he brought on himself for being an abusive monster but uh, also just the fact that he couldn't let it go it's like he's the one that's dragging all this out now and making himself look worse well well it so often happens with men like this doesn't it? yeah like um like and because honestly they don't think that they've done anything wrong they at, at some level they don't believe right that they have done something wrong they and you know they misremember or they pretend that they don't remember all of that and and it's just like, well, no, you pro- you provoked me, right? She provoked me. She was turning the kids against me. The kids provoked me. All of that shit. It, you know, if if you didn't act like this, I wouldn't have to do this. It's all of those kind of that kind of language of abusers, and um, and it's it's being writ large, right? And then already we're getting like the TMZ reports, just like friends of Brad Pitt say that this is all bullshit. Just like, of course, friends of Brad Pitt say that this is right. all bullshit. Like, of course they do. <laughs> yeah, are those friends on the payroll? just you know just wondering <laughs> <laughs> we we did have a message from we uh did. from from shakita, from shakita. Mm-hmm. one from of shakita our who... sorry no go on no go ahead <laughs> um i i just wanted to bring it up because because she sent a she sent us an email and um shakita i, I don't know if you feel comfortable with us reading the email out but you did you did see you did say that to feel free to paraphrase um but so shakita talked about you know wanting to touch on the the Shirley pitt story um and she said that she grew up in, in a house with an abusive stepfather and as she got older she began to feel responsible for her mother's safety 
Um, and that that at this point, and this this is a really good point. It probably wasn't the first time that Brad was violent with Angelina, but I assume that it was the first time that that he attacked their kids. Yeah, yeah um, that and a that's really a really point. that's a very good point. That like that does seem to be very and so often again you see this with abusive cases generally, right? Where the mother is more willing to tolerate abuse of herself as long as he doesn't turn against the children, and then as and then when he turns against the children, it's just like okay, at this point, it stops being about my safety, becomes about their safety. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and Shikido goes on to say that there is no excuse for, for his behavior and, and also mentions that if Brad Pitt were a black man and he attacked a white actress, he would be in jail and would not be in any movies at all. I think that that's probably true. And even if you look at in a, in a very different light, um, if you look at the treatment of Will Smith post mm-hmm. the, the Oscars slap, just right? thinking that too. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the way that some Academy voters have been talking about just, he will never, you know, he'll never be nominated again. He'll never be asked to present all of these things. And it's just like, well, wait a minute, you know, like, like, I'm not saying that what Will Smith did was right. Um, but you know, how many of these people worked with Harvey Weinstein? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how many and of these would people- again, if he still had power. Yeah, how many of these people supported Johnny Depp through all of the um, through all of the the Amber Heard stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, how many of these people are supporting Brad Pitt right now? Right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. So, like, there was an article this week. I didn't I didn't read the article. I just read the headline. I apologize. I will admit that. But I also saw the conversation that was unfolding as a result of it, and it was Mila Kunis talking about being just really annoyed or frustrated or bothered that um, when. Will Smith won his Oscar that night after the slap had happened and he had been allowed to stay and then he won. He got a standing ovation and that she was just horrified that he had just assaulted someone on stage and then they got they gave him a standing ovation when he won his Oscar, which, you know, isn't a terrible point. But uh, this is also this like I would like to know where she stands on Brad Pitt. And if she's going to comment on this stuff, like, let's talk about it. How do you feel about the fact that people gave Roman Polanski a standing ovation when he wasn't even there, you know, uh, yeah, when he exactly. couldn't be there? And um, and the number the number of A-list stars who are still willing to work with David O. Russell right. or uh, Woody Allen. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in fact, she has worked with Woody Allen. But anyway, so, yeah, it's it's like, OK, if you're going to be upset about one situation why are you so willing to work with and support and cheer on all these other people and it's true brad pitt like since 2016 since this happened and shakita points this out in her email too um but he won an oscar for acting he has produced oscar winning movies like he he's very much welcome in in hollywood you know like the doors are wide open for him he's not suffering from this at all and people know about you know exactly well maybe they don't know exactly what happened but they definitely know about these allegations and i would imagine that a lot of people know a lot of other stuff that he's probably done because yeah it's true that a lot of abusers especially like in spousal abuse situations they're they're good at hiding it they know you know not to hit the face things like that but that also doesn't mean that they're never abusive to anybody else, even verbally in any other situation. So, also, people know about it. Yeah, right. People know about it, partic- particularly people that are particularly if, if you're a serial abuser. Right. right. 
Um, it's, and I, I find it very difficult to believe that no one else in Hollywood was aware of this mm-hmm. um, and was aware of his behavior. And, and you know, and, and probably, not, you know, he may not have been abusive to, to you know, just, just people on the set or whatever. He may be perfectly nice about that, but he but he's abusive to his spouse. Um, even, even like, you know, very early around about the time that um, that Pitt and, and Aniston were going through their breakup, there was there was like a uh, I think it was a, it was a W magazine spread or something like that, that basically Brad Pitt just moved ahead with, even though they were breaking up, even though, you know, he this whole affair had come out, et cetera. And essentially, Jennifer Aniston was like, this is shocking that he's going ahead with this this magazine spread of us mm-hmm. um, be, because, and her basic thing was just like, well, I don't think he's doing it deliberately, but he's missing an empathy chip. And it's just like, can we talk about this again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, can we talk about the fact that he, that like at least one of his exes is saying he doesn't, uh, he doesn't feel empathy. Like he just doesn't understand yeah. that this might be hurtful. I remember one time it was a red carpet, probably for the Oscars. And it was Brad and Jen were still together. And um, the reporter asked them something about, you know, their marriage. I think they had just hit their fifth anniversary or something like that. And so the reporter was asking like, oh, you know, how are things going? You know, some some really dumb red carpet question. But Brad said something about like, well, who knows? I mean, I don't necessarily think marriage is for life. So we'll just see what happens. We're just enjoying it while while we have it. And Jen just looks at him so shocked, like, wait, I'm sorry, what? And it was just that was the first time where I was like, something's weird here. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, that's that's not normal for no. someone to just be like, oh, this marriage might be over. So just like, I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, let's stop talking about Brad. Yes. Who is Good significantly idea. less pretty this week. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, and thank you, Shakita, for for sharing your thoughts and comment. Um, but we would like to talk about something much happier, and that is horror <laughs> movies, because it is <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> and Yay! we love spooky movie season. And this week we decided we want to specifically dive into the not very long, but very far-reaching uh in terms of influence filmography of james whale and so that is who we're talking about this week um james whale was born in england um in 1889 i wonder if he ever got to experience tacos he probably did because he came to la um but uh anyway he he got into theater got excited about theater first um when he was in a prison camp in world war one and um ended up deciding to go to la and got started in movies he started as a set designer and then eventually he got to become a director and did all kinds of things the first film that he directed was in um 1930 he directed the film version of the first play he directed, Journey's End, and um, that was kind of where his career got started. He worked with Howard Hughes. Anybody who has uh, seen the movie Hell's Angels or has seen The Aviator by the guess he's okay kind of Martin Scorsese. That's a whole other thing we didn't talk about. <laughs> Did you see that article? Sorry. Anyway, I digress. Yes. <laughs> 
yes, yes. We don't have to talk about that right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you know what? We'll we'll link the 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 thread that Guillermo del Toro. Oh my gosh, Guillermo! Uh, has about you that do not want to be on his bad side because <laughs> he he expressed, I think, exactly what we all feel about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Anyway, sorry. Side note. Anyway, so yeah, so he he uh, helped. He was assistant on uh, Hell's Angels with Howard Hughes. And uh, then that kind of just really got him solidly into directing movies. He went to Universal and started directing stuff. And that eventually led him to direct several of the uh, Universal monster movies. So let's, uh, I think let's start our conversation there. Mm-hmm. Um, with Frankenstein in 1931, which he was not originally supposed to direct. It was supposed to be Robert Flory, um, who ended up not doing it because Bella Lugosi was originally supposed to play or act in that movie, star in that movie, and decided he didn't want to do it after he had um, been in Dracula. So Lugosi dropped out. Flory ends up not doing the movie, and they tap james whale to direct it and it ends up becoming one of the most influential horror movies of all time well and and it's interesting because dracula and frankenstein are you know they're both released the same year mm-hmm. um one's directed by todd browning the other is is directed by james whale and i mean these are probably two of the most influential uh hollywood horror films of, of all time like in terms yeah. of the influence on the culture the aesthetic we've talked about universal horror films before um and and it, it's it's interesting to think that you know in an, in a different situation you know Lugosi would have been both monsters mm-hmm. um and and I you know and how that would have worked would it have been as influential I I don't know I mean definitely when you look at Frankenstein and then and then Bride of Frankenstein it the the aesthetic is very similar to Dracula in a lot of ways um, and there's there's definitely this building kind of of the universal what would eventually become the universal brand. But Whale is is heavily influenced by German expressionism, and you can see it in Frankenstein immediately. Like it's it's so visible. Um, all of the canted angles, all of the you know kind of odd, odd cuts, the 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 whole aesthetic of the monster himself. Um, all of, all of these different things, and then you've got Karloff in the center of that, who at that point wasn't particularly known. He he was kind of a a, a bit player a character actor he'd been in a couple of films um and he'd been around and everything but he he wasn't this star right and in 90, by by 1931 with the release of dracula the does become a star like he's major at that moment um so you've got karloff who's playing this you know who's not this very well-known actor um this 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 director who is particularly well known again and they just create this spectacular horror film um that is is so different and is so so wild and really is bringing uh that kind of german expressionist sensibility and um and horror sensibility into the united states um and in in a way that even dracula doesn't really do and dracula relies a lot more i think on the contrast between the world of dracula and the world of transylvania and the the world of london frankenstein and particularly bride of frankenstein you were just embedded in this very weird uh almost almost um out of time culture right and and set design and everything it's it's really a if you look at if you look at particularly those two films um as a piece they are so 
aesthetically remarkable and so influential that it's it's almost difficult to pull yourself out of them and be like, think about how different this would have been for American audiences in 1931. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that I think that's one of the things I just rewatched Frankenstein last night. I mean, obviously, I've seen it a bunch of times, but I wanted to have it fresh in my mind. And I, I think one of the things that really strikes me about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but more so the first one, is that it really is a movie. It's not very long. It's only, what, an hour and 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, but it really is paced well. And it it really, it it sort of develops. And there's so much where it's more the anticipation of the fear. It's more of the... Um, the tense the tenseness comes from the dread and there's that really he does such a good job of building that tension and that dread and so when you finally see the monster um the experience really pays off because you've been waiting for it and then it is this kind of horrifying looking thing um but it's just interesting because it's such a long journey to get there but it's so rich with getting to know these other characters and getting to understand these people especially you know the doctor who you know is supposed to be the well i i mean i'm not going to say he's supposed to be but um you know he considers himself the hero of this story and um the monster is supposed to be the villain but uh, you spend so much time getting to know the doctor and getting to see how he treats people around him and how important he considers himself and establish that really the doctor is the monster of this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, and I think that that would have, would have been read the same way in a lot of ways in, in 1931 because Frankenstein isn't particularly um, sympathetic. Right. Uh, Not at he, all. And, and in fact, even the way that it's represented is that after the creation of the monster and after kind of the monster goes berserk, et cetera, it's he's represented as a, Frankenstein himself is represented as basically realizing that he's gone insane, right? Mm -hmm. That he's like had this, this mental breakdown in which he was obsessed with this idea of creating life um, out of out of corpses, right? Of right. like basically besting God, which is very much in keeping with with the original novel. Yeah. Um. And and then realizing what he's done and seeing what he's done horrifies him to the degree that he he finally just like breaks down completely. Yeah. And and then realize just like, okay, I, I was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like even in, in rewatching this, I think this time I was I was struck by how Henry Frankenstein in this movie yeah. um <laughs> is I don't know why he, he Victor becomes Henry and Henry becomes Victor, but apparently it does <laughs> does. Um but so Henry Frankenstein in this movie is is deeply unsympathetic. Mm -hmm. And and is in fact like there there's an entire scene where after he's created the monster and he's sitting there talking with his his like old colleague his old professor, um and he's just like oh well you know he's only a couple of days old right so so you know we just gotta wait and see and then we get in, we're introduced to the monster and it it's and almost immediately you feel sympathy for this creature because they open the skylight right to let the sun come in and this is it's implied that this is the first time he's ever seen the sun. Mm -hmm. and he like reaches up for it and then frank says like oh close it close it and they take the sun away from him so, and it's heartbreaking because he's standing there you know and and it's fantastic performance by karloff because it's all you know 
voiceless. It's just the only time he he makes any sounds or grunts, right? Mm-hmm. But he just holds out his hands. And the camera really focuses on that. It focuses on the fact, you know, him basically pleading with his creator. Yeah. Um, you know, what what's happening? Why did you take that away from me? And you sit there and go like, okay, so this this is a newborn, literally. Like this is a a a creature that has just been created, has just been born, has never seen sunlight, has been in a dungeon for the past few days, right? And almost immediately his creator shows him the sun and takes it away from him. Yeah. And then his assistant waves a torch in his face. <laughs> oh, that guy. And, and yeah. Frankenstein is like, oh no, my God, he's going insane. Just like, of course he's going insane. He's a gigantic baby that you just stuck a piece of fire into his face. Of course he's going insane. Mm-hmm. Like I would too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also, I mean, he's a gigantic baby with the brain of a murderer, apparently. But uh, <laughs> that's, you know, I just, I, I, what I love about Frankenstein is, I mean, the book is one of my very favorite books. And this, obviously, there are definitely some differences. But I think that what makes it so great, and I think what James Whale really did well, was capture the important themes of Mary Shelley's work and and really translate those to the screen in a way that the audience can enjoy as a movie because cinema the experience of cinema and the experience of reading a book are very different things and I know we have such a literal mindset a lot of times nowadays and like oh well, why'd they change this from the book or that you know whatever people just want it to be an exact replica and it's like that's not what movies are for and James Whale understood that and he he adapted that story in a way with, through his direction, through his choices, through his casting, through all of it. Um, and I don't know how much of it he actually had the final control over, but um, but it was like his his vision and his view really helped tell that story in a way that stayed true to the story that Mary Shelley was trying to tell, even through the the changes that they had to make to make it something that was more suitable for the medium and that is a big part of why james whale ended up being such an influential director yeah uh, absolutely um well one of the interesting things that i noticed i guess and again in this in this watch and i've seen like you have know, seen frankenstein a lot mm-hmm. um but but was the the role of the the professor and i'm trying to remember his name now i blanked on his name Dr. Walpin? Yes. Edward Van Sloan? Yes, Edward Van Sloan, um, who introduces the film, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. He, he comes out onto the stage just like, this is horrifying. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and I th- I believe, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while actually since I've seen the 31 Dracula, but if I'm not mistaken, that also happens in the 31 Dracula, where you've got literally Edward Van Sloan, who plays Van Helsing in that film, mm-hmm. coming out onto the stage to to say like, by the way, this is going to horrify you. So leave now if you're yeah. not, um, <laughs> you know, if you're faint of heart, et cetera. So it's, it's that kind of building up. It's that that theatrical element of these films. Um, but his character is really interesting because he's kind of, even more so than Frankenstein, he's very much the scientific materialist character who is just like, no, this is a bad brain. 
Mm -hmm. right? This is an evil brain. You can tell if someone is a criminal based upon the contours of their brain. Right. Um, you know, all, all of that stuff that was very popular, particularly uh, in the 19th century and, and into the early part of the 20th century of like this, this whole idea that, that you're predetermined almost to be criminal. Um, and, and so he is against the creation of the monster, understandably, uh, but he's also fascinated by it, but he, he keeps on repeating this whole thing and this, this kind of mantra about good and evil that shows up even more so in, in Bride of Frankenstein. And we'll talk, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to it, but, and, and also shows up in The Invisible Man um, about this like predetermination of evil. And, mm -hmm. but I think that the film itself actually undercuts that in a lot of ways. The monster's evil, right, is never deliberate. Um, he, I, th I think that the, the first person that he kills is Fritz who attacks him literally and keeps shoving a, a torch in his face. Yeah. Um, he then kills the, the, uh, Edward, Edward Van Sloan, Dr. Walden, um, who is trying to dissect him. Right. right? Well, he's still alive, by the way, hasn't killed him. Right. Mm -hmm. No, he's trying to dissect him while he's still alive. So again, that both of those can be considered to be self-defense, essentially. Very much. Um, yeah. And then the the death of the little girl, which is an accident. It's mm -hmm. because he doesn't understand how the world works. He doesn't understand what he's doing. Right. Um, and so he doesn't mean to kill the little girl, uh, Maria, but he he does. So and he's actually horrified by it. And he flees from it. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, at each step, so the monster is not inherently criminal or inherently evil. And if you look at, you know, some of the rhetoric that particularly Dr. Walton uses is that, you know, oh, Frankenstein and him, they would be total, they are totally like good, right? They're normal at some level. The monster is abnormal, but the monster is the one who is is actually behaving probably the most human way. Right. Um, because he he's the basis of humanity at some level. He's he's a newborn. He's He's a baby that has never experienced life particularly so even though he's got this quote criminal abnormal brain in his head um he is behaving in a, a, an intrinsically human way mm. yeah yeah exactly and because he is well yeah and because he's a sort of this newborn and um growing and developing from there uh he can he has the ability to become whatever you know he's taught to be and 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 all that and i know that gets into the nature versus nurture discussion and they were not ready for that but uh you know it's like yeah he is the most pure because he he still at that point could uh could grow and learn and and become so many other things so um okay so from frankenstein we next the next year he does uh james whale does a romance movie and then he does the old dark house 1932 he reunites with karloff and um also the old dark house stars gloria stewart charles lawton and raymond massey um what are your thoughts about the old dark house i love the old dark house <laughs> It is such a weird movie and and it's been so described weird. as it's been described as both so the old dark house genre subgenre um was was a thing in during silent film right this and this shows up a couple of times but there's a question about whether or not it was ever really taken seriously uh it because a lot of the more famous silent films that are old dark house movies are sort of inherently humorous 
Um, and one of the big ones is The Cat and the Canary, which is a, a murder mystery, an old dark house murder mystery. But a lot of it is is played for laughs, right? Um, it's, it's a fantastic film. It's also very creepy in its own way. But so, you know, it's it's that whole, that, that genre of, you know, people caught in a storm um, going to a, a, a house with a house in the middle of the countryside, totally isolated with lights in the window and, you know, weird shit begins happening. One of the things that I love about the old dark house is that basically these, the, the people who show up at the old dark house, um, are kind of trapped into it, right? They can't go any further. Uh, the roads are washed out. There's this massive storm. If they don't stop here, they, they might wind up dead basically. Right, um, yeah. but they walk in and almost immediately it's just like this shit's weird right uh the the entrance particularly of Ernest Thesiger who then comes back uh in in Wales's films as uh, Dr. Pretorius and Bride of Frankenstein his entrance is one of my favorite entrances in horror cinema because he is so obviously typed as queer um, and we know this because the first thing that he says is he kind of sweeps down this long staircase and looks at them and says, my name is Femme. And, and there's a pause, right? And then finally he says, Horace Femme. <laughs> but it's, it's this, it's this wonderful kind of, it's obviously, you know, kind of a queer joke. Um, but it's, it's also just this wonderful entrance. It's just like, shit's going to be weird. Like almost immediately you've got this guy who's dressed kind of in 19th century um, funeral clothes. Uh, so he's, even though this is supposed to be taking place in the 1930s, um, he is completely kind of out of time. He is already bizarre. And they're kind of stuck with him. And then we get introduced to his sister, who is like a bizarre Bible thumper, who at one point tells one of the women, it's just like, you're evil, you're all evil. <laughs> um, and the the whole thing is just so stylized and it's intended to be funny. It isn't intended like to be 100% taken seriously, but it yeah. is this kind of, it, this this moment of these these, you know, quote, normal people being trapped into this very weird situation that they're just going to have to deal with mm -hmm. yeah there's a crazy pyromaniac there's people hooking up there's yeah <laughs> it's a it's a trip and it's so much fun and if you have not seen the old dark house you should definitely watch it um i think this is probably a good place to talk about james whale and the fact that not only was he gay but he did not try to hide this he was very open about his sexuality he was very open about his uh relationship with david lewis david lewis yes his, par producer. his partner his partner is david lewis and they they were together um as a couple from 1930 to 1952 yeah yeah Hollywood, but just in the world, it wasn't really acceptable to be open um, and living in, you know, in the public eye. And he just kind of went, well, this is me. And people said, okay, we'll take it. Um, and it's interesting. I, I uh, read something the other day that was speculating that his lifestyle was part of why he eventually was kind of pushed out of Hollywood. And I just thought, you know, I think there's probably more to it than that because um, he was so successful 
and kept getting movies and stuff, you know, for a long time. So I don't know. I think there's, there's a lot more to that story, but, um, but I think that's something that is really important about whale is the fact that he was um, out and, and very just, this is me, this is my life. And you also see that and infused into his movies, you know, Um, there's a lot of queer coding through, uh, through his horror films, especially. I haven't really seen much beyond his horror movies, but, um, but yeah, and I think that that is something that really um, sets, that's another thing that sets him apart in terms of, of uh, his career and his filmography is his, his open embrace of queer characters. Yeah, his, a lot of his legacy, he's very much uh, responsible for a lot of queer horror. Right? Yeah. This, this kind of, this association. And and you want to be really careful because I think that there are, there are, there are things that would certainly be considered to be homophobic in, in some of his, his films, but at the same time, it's this injection of queerness mm-hmm. and, and, and of things, like I say, that cannot be read any other way. Um, right. It's difficult to not read, you know, Ernest Thesiger, again, who is who's also just a very queer actor. Right. And and was himself gay. Um, but, you know, he he presents himself as this, you know, and, and people have even talked about his characterizations as being almost stereotypical. But it's that that like, you know, quote, questionable sexuality. What is the sexuality here? What is um, what is the meaning of of these characters? Right. And that kind of indulgence in it and that willingness to actually represent queerness and to say that horror in itself, monstrosity, right, at some level, has a queer aspect to it. Um, and, and again, we see that again very much so in Bride of Frankenstein because of because in part of Ernest Dessiger, but also just in the entire construction of the Frankenstein story. Um, and even in the original Frankenstein, we get a lot of it, of, um, of that in this whole idea about a man creating life out, you know, outside of mm-hmm. sexual reproduction. Right. Right. So that, that, and, oh, and the, the connections between other men, both mm-hmm. within the original Frankenstein and, and also in the invisible man, also in the old dark house and also in, um, Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. So that kind of runs through all of Wales horror films. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the invisible man. You've mentioned it a couple of times now. Um, this also was, this was 1933. So, um, so he has Frankenstein in 31, old dark house in 32, invisible man in 33, and then boom, Friday Frankenstein, 1935. So he, he does his four highly influential horror films and only four horror films, even though it feels like he directed a lot more than than four um, over the course of, of four to five years. So, um, but yeah, so The Invisible Man comes out in 1933. It's the adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel. And um, one of the things that uh, that Whale gets some credit for here is uh, casting Claude Rains in the lead role um, since he was going to be covered up. And uh, wasn't gonna like didn't they didn't have to have a recognizable face because they needed a really good voice and yeah. that's what they got in Claude Rains. So, um, I I love the Invisible Man. I love how it just really leans into the the crazy because <laughs> the whole thing is is this particular formula that this another doctor another scientist um, he's been experimenting with. Uh, with some um i don't even know how to describe it but anyway he's been 
I guess they're, it's like a whitening formula or something. Yeah, it's, and... it's a, it's a chemical though. It's implied that it's, it's a chemical that comes from a plant, I think in India. Or yeah. Something it's like always that. that. But it's, it's, it's originally a bleaching chemical, but then essentially what he, he figures out how to use it for is how to make himself invisible. Unaware of the fact that the chemical is also associated with driving, driving uh, animals specifically insane. Right um and so that's kind of the explanation of it it's interesting because in because both the invisible man and frankenstein starts the the main characters at the point of they've already lost their minds yeah yeah they're already the villains basically Mm -hmm. um so we don't see that kind of upward trajectory uh which actually we we do see in in a later invisible man film the one that stars vincent price and that whale didn't direct but um, you you don't see that upward trajectory of like you know how does he go crazy how does he become this this obsessive madman right um, what you see is like oh he already crazy <laughs> yeah yeah well and that's the thing it's like so when you first start and you see him be nuts it's it's a little bit jarring because it's just like wait <laughs> like he's a scientist like it sucks that he's invisible but why is he nuts and then you find out like oh that's a side effect of this thing that he's been working on and it's pretty normal for him to go nuts and he really claude rains does such a great job because this like maniacal laugh that he develops and and then there's just this total playfulness of of the movie too where like because he's crazy he gets to just do all this batshit stuff um some of it wasn't literally claude rains doing it it was just visual effects but um but just it's it's so it's funny um and also it's it's you know it's just really well done horror so let's talk about the visual effects of uh, i I am amazed by the visual effects of this film, honestly, because it works so well. Mm-hmm. And there are a few, there are a few moments, you know, where you can definitely see the uh, the use. Bas- basically, they're they're overlaying frames, right? Right. Um, and and you can see like the kind of blips, right, that are happening. But it is so effective, and you're getting like because it, it isn't just like you know, oh, a, a, dis- a disembodied voice hovering everywhere. You get him putting on clothes, taking off clothes, lighting cigarettes, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting on wrappings, taking off wrappings, all of this stuff. And so you're actually getting like this very real, obvious visual manifestation of invisibility, right? Right. Um, and and it's it's amazing. And and when you think about it, that these are all effects that are done with. Uh, with the camera and um, and then just like regular practical effects, like things on wires. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's it's really amazing to watch. It's amazing how well this holds up for a film that was made in, you know, 19. What is it? 1933. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really right. Remarkable. Well, and I think it's also important to point out, too, that like, sure, now we can kind of see um we can see, like you said the blips we can see sort of the the layering and some you know some of the techniques are a little bit easier to spot now but you have to also remember that our TVs the transfers all of that from film to the digital versions that we see nowadays compress all that stuff so much that it makes it a lot easier to spot those things so it's like imagine watching this in 1933 and you have never seen anything like this before and you're watching it in a theater and it's a lot less obvious some of those those tricks and 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 things that they did to create these effects it's just oh man i you know if i could go back 
like everyone says, oh, you know, there's a time period they'd love to travel back to. I don't necessarily want to stay there, but I would love to go back to the 1930s and just hang out in a movie theater and just watch some of these movies back then. Yeah. You know, it'd be so much fun. So, yeah. Well, and, and we have to remember when we watch these kinds of special effects that, like I say, that these are being done with, you know, what we would consider very primitive right. um, uh, kinds of film technology. And so the fact that, you know, and Whale knows knows a lot of this stuff, right? His cinematographers know a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. They know how to make these things look believable. And it really is remarkable what people were able to do with that kind of technology. Even if you look back on, on like I said, some of the expressionist films or or some of the films by, by someone like George Millet, who is, you know, working with even more primitive technology yeah. than Whale was, right? And the the things that he was able to figure out how to do um and to make them look so believable is is really really remarkable and i do think that when it comes to the invisible man a lot of a lot of that also has to do with claude rains and the other actors to be totally mm -hmm. honest um making making you buy that right making you um believe that like there is this invisible person who's running around the room who's like pushing people over pushing people downstairs <laughs> grabbing police by their feet and dragging yeah, them like, away <laughs> exactly all all of that like so the the actors themselves are selling it as well because they are invested in it um and i i did one of the things i really like about the invisible man just in general is is when you realize that he spends most of the movie naked mm -hmm. um because you know his clothes are not <laughs> invisible so and there's even a scene where he takes off all of his clothes he's just like oh so you don't believe me huh well huh? and he strips right yeah. in front of all of these people and so there's there is just something really funny about thinking about this film is like oh he's this you know murderous madman but he's also claude rains naked running around the countryside <laughs> yes. um yeah uh, I and I've known more than a few men who that would be their dream. So, <laughs> you know. Well, and it actually, you know, feeds into some of the things. Like they talk about how oh, he's going to have to find some place to keep warm because the snow is coming. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, all of that stuff. Like he he talks about, oh, I'm really cold. Can you please give me a blanket? <laughs> and and so the film reminds you just like, by the way, this dude is running around naked the entire yep. time. <laughs> uh one thing I, I did really want to mention quickly is that in, in this viewing of The Invisible Man, I was reminded, particularly when he begins causing havoc, right? And one of his intentions that he says to, to his, his former colleague is that he wants to basically dominate the world. Um, and he's going to do that by committing murder yeah. and creating anarchy, right? And it, this this is a film that's made in, um, you know, it's, it's being made in 1932, 1933. And interestingly enough, it is being made and released around about the same time as Fritz Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, uh, which is specifically addressing um, Nazism and the rise of, of Adolf Hitler. But it's doing it in a very strikingly similar way about this kind of spectral madman who is causing havoc across the country and is making people paranoid is turning people against each other um you know this this whole thing in the invisible man about like he could be in the room with us at this very moment yeah uh where is he you know he he could you know all of the different ways that they try to catch him all of those things um and the fact that this is taking place around the same time as kind of the rise of hitler and and also just the rise of of anarchism generally um is really interesting and i'm not necessarily saying that um that whale is intending this to be in any way a commentary about hitler but it's definitely 
pulling out of some of the the things in the zeitgeist that um i think really represent some of the the fears of the era yeah definitely um so his final horror film was 1935 the bride of frankenstein we did a full episode about that so i don't know that we necessarily um want to spend too much time on that now but uh i know you rewatched um all of these this week so did i what are some did you have any like new thoughts about bride of frankenstein and this uh this week when you were rewatching? not necessarily new thoughts although there there was like a moment where i was getting choked up about the monster <laughs> um in part in part because i just got my booster shot and so yesterday i was really tired and i was rewatching bride of frankenstein and i was just like poor monster mm-hmm. it's not his fault like um but you know in talking about in talking about that and about karloff's performance in particular he gives so much sympathy and so much um understanding of this creature yeah. And really makes you, especially in Bride of Frankenstein, really makes you feel for him mm-hmm. and for his downfall, for his pain. And, you know, when he learns about friendship and he learns about, but he also learns about good and evil. Um, and, and you know, and he, he, he at one point is finally told, you know, you are good, you're good. And it's it's shocking to him because the entire time he's been treated with nothing but hatred, with nothing but contempt and fear. Um, and, and he continues to be, and that really what finally, you know, doesn't make him evil necessarily, but what finally drives him over the edge is continuously having that taken away from him. Yeah. Um, that he does understand kindness finally with, with his interaction with the blind man. Uh, he does finally understand what it means to have a friend, what it means to be loved, what it means to be like touched in a way that isn't out of fear, that isn't, you know, creating pain. And he understands that and it makes his suffering in some ways that much worse um because he, it's he stops being treated kindly mm-hmm. uh, i i was also struck at the the parallels in the way that the blind man treats him and the way that pretorius treats him because pretorius is obviously treating him in a particular way that is is in order to further his own ends right but it's like the blind man teaches him about food and and you know cigars and wine and, and music and friendship right and then pretorius kind of twists all of that so he keeps on giving him alcohol to make him drunk so that he won't bother them um he keeps on like you know saying oh i'm your friend so and and of course he isn't being his friend he just wants to control him just wants to use him and so he in many ways you know you've got I think you've got this interesting parallel between Pretorius and Frankenstein, but also really interesting parallel between the blind man and Pretorius and the friendship that the blind man has shown him and the love that the blind man has shown him and the way that Pretorius twists all of those things to his own ends and, and then all, and ultimately destroys himself and the monster. Right. So that was something that, that struck me this time around. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, first of all, I think that whoever writes the blurbs for Peacock needs to not do them anymore because I was a little annoyed when I opened up Bride of Frankenstein and the description said that um, Dr. Frankenstein creates, how did it word it, uh, creates a hissy, frizzy haired companion for his monster. Jesus Christ. 
I was so mad. I was we just like, we do not disrespect the bride in this house. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, first of all, that, oh, yeah, there's, it's so reductive. It's so disrespectful. And it just made me so angry. Um, anyway, so I just, I, I guess for myself, I just, I'm, I'm always really struck by, first of all, how this manages to, I mean, this was a, a sequel. Um, Wales only sequel that he did. And um, and I'm really struck by how so much it had to be removed from the novel for the first movie, just for time and and story and things. And then they managed to find a really good way to include some of those into the sequel and make it really feel like these are two parts of the same story. It's like you know, nowadays it's very common to do a part one and a part two when, when people are adapting a big book and it feels like Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein, although the book, the novel never gets to the bride part, um, but it feels like this is a part one and part two of, of Mary Shelley's work. And I just, I really love how the two go hand in hand. They do feel like they're the same you know, basically the same movie. You could watch these just back to back and just feel like you're watching yeah. one continual story, partly because of the fact that it picks up right where the first one leaves off. And and then it just it continues. It all feels, you know, the monster, quote unquote, feels true to the same like Karloff. You know, the the performance isn't different, you know, like it's it's the same mm-hmm. character. And um Henry Frankenstein is just becoming crazier and it's just watching this descent, watching the way these characters grow and change and devolve in some ways. Um, it's just, it's so well done. And it really, you really see this wasn't just a um, let's make a bunch more money type of sequel. Whale took it very seriously and mm-hmm. constructed a film that really feels like, the first movie is incomplete without this one. Yeah. Although you do have to say that the aesthetic changes, like even, yeah. the se- even the, even the set, they of- probably had a lot more money for this one. <laughs> they they did. Yeah, definitely. But the, but like even the set of the, the difference between the set, the sort of sunny kind of modern um, set of True. the first of the first film um, when you when you get to the the whatever Castle Frankenstein as it were and then it's just like oh it's gone really gothic all of a sudden uh, Henry Frankenstein's father is dead suddenly yeah um, he he's he's suddenly like become the the Baron and everything so there is the, these interesting discrepancies not to mention the fact that Elizabeth completely changes actors well yeah okay so there are differences i'm not saying there's not i'm yeah. saying that it just if you really can watch the two together and feel like you're watching the same story if you ignore some of those little details yeah and and i like the fact that bride of frankenstein does the whole like ah oh, just to remind you of what happened last time mm-hmm. you know <laughs> previously um, on <laughs> yeah. and it makes sense you know the the first frankenstein comes out in 1931 the next one comes out in 1935 right um a lot of people are going to be like oh yeah what how did the first frankenstein movie end you know that mm-hmm. that kind of thing it's it feels very much like a sequel like you say yeah i'm not saying that it i'm not saying that it doesn't i just think it's funny that it goes from like this one very particular kind of aesthetic um in the first film and then suddenly the entire castle has changed yeah and and i do think a lot of that has to do with with money also i mean like you say it had been four years i don't know how how often people got the opportunity to rewatch stuff like i don't know 
if Frankenstein was re-released at any point between the two films, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So, I mean, some of those details, it's like, eh, you know, but, um, but I, I just, I think that it's in general, I think looking at the two films, whale really um put a lot of thought and care into this to make it feel like this wasn't just a sequel about money this was a sequel about there's still more story to tell oh definitely definitely i agree with that and and i mean a lot of people consider the the bride of frankenstein to be the better film in a lot of ways to kind of be Wales's masterpiece mm-hmm. um and and it does feel like he got to do more of what he wanted to in in the bride of frankenstein even than he did in frankenstein especially yeah. i think you know because the original was so successful um saying like oh we're gonna come back for more it's just like okay yeah you can pretty much do whatever you want to well there was partly that and also partly frankenstein was one of his very first films that he directed so yeah i mean his first movie was in 1930 and by the time you get to bride of frankenstein he's directed like seven or eight movies since then and and most of them had been pretty successful so um so yeah he probably had a lot more of the studio's confidence he probably had a lot more power to say no 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 this is what i'm doing and um as a result makes i mean i would agree it's definitely if not the best horror film it's one of the very best horror films of all time so yeah Mm -hmm. uh yeah so that's uh that is the horror filmography of James Whale. Art, we did an entire bonus episode about The Bride of Frankenstein last year. Um, and it was just, if you want to go back and look it up, it was released in October of last year. So um, it, you should go back and listen to it if you didn't. Or listen again, because, you know, re-listening is, is allowed. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you. Um, yeah. So did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to, to talk about as far as, um, James Whale and his horror films and, and themes and. I, I just think that it's amazing that a a filmmaker who really only made four horror films, right. And he made other movies, but Mm -hmm. most of them are not as, um, and not as well known. He directed Showboat. Um, and, and so he, and he very much didn't want to be typed as a horror director. In fact, he, he was initially resistant to making some of these, um, because he didn't want to be typed that way. But I think that's amazing that someone who only made four horror films made four horror films that are so incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. Um, the like, uh, horror, Hollywood horror certainly does not look the same without James Whale. Right. Uh, and without these films and what he managed to accomplish with them and to kind of embed them so much in the cultural mindset. You know, even if you haven't seen these films, you've seen them, you've seen their influence throughout like cinematic history. And I think that's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely a long reaching uh, influence and, and career. And I think that I think it's because he put so much thought and care into the experience of the film and each each time like he put i haven't seen i haven't actually seen any of his movies that were not the horror movies but um um but these four in particular he really and i'm assuming he did this with his other films too just so much so much consideration and care into the experience and into the story that he wanted to tell and um, and it really shows like that attention to detail is a big part of why these films continue to resonate now. Why last year when there was a 
you know, double feature of Frankenstein and, and Dracula at the theater, that place was packed on a Saturday morning, you know, because people still almost a hundred years later, not just love horror movies because of what he did, but love these horror movies still specifically. And I just, I just, I think about like, who do we have working now that people are still going to care that much about their movies in 90 years? There will be some, but I don't, I can't imagine who it is, you know? Yeah. The, the influence is, is really remarkable. And the fact, and you know, like you say, these films hold up, like they're still entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were talking about the Invisible Man. The special effects are um, are remarkable. The yeah. the imagery is remarkable, um, and it's and it's still there. Like this isn't something that you know is gonna going to lose its power in some way. Right. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking though just now about the most recent version of the Invisible Man, which starred Elizabeth Moss, uh, directed by Lee Wanell, which is a very good movie. It's very entertaining. Um. I really liked it, but I was just thinking about how funny it is that uh, in that movie, um, the invisible man has a suit that makes him invisible. So he is not running around naked. And that almost feels like they thought that through. (laughs) I think that that's cowardly. I think it's cowardly to be totally honest. Just like, no, let the invisible man be naked. This is like, well, and and actually in the, in the film and in the original novel, it, it comes up the, problem of of him having to run around naked is a problem because just like it's cold yeah it's cold there's no shoes yeah you're being yeah you're being exposed to the elements literally (laughs) like you have to deal with that Mm -hmm. and and it it causes problems for him and i i think that that is an important element of the story it is it definitely is uh any other final thoughts about james whale um we haven't really talked about the movie they made about him gods and monsters did you which which i've seen but i have not seen in many many years mm, okay i just rewatched it again this week because i was like oh yeah because i was in the same boat i hadn't seen it in a really long time i don't i don't know how i feel about it a lot of people love it i feel like it kind of paints him as a monster and i i don't well, know I think that's some of the intention isn't it yeah I mean, to, to kind of draw those those parallels between yes. between his characterization between him and and the the creatures that he created yes but i guess what i mean is that i feel like it paints him as a bit of a predator and it just feels like true. yeah and it just it feels like i don't know if this is something that james whale would feel comfortable with uh well, and it, it is interesting. By all accounts, he wasn't, right? And, right. and like, like you said earlier, the fact that he was pretty much open about his sexuality in Hollywood of the 1930s mm-hmm. is unusual, right? Yeah. Um, and is is amazing, especially as it doesn't seem to, at least initially, you know, maybe it affected his career later on, but initially it doesn't seem to have affected his career. Yeah. Um, which is incredibly unusual in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that exp- an explanation of why that might have been and, and what that might have meant, I think is, would be more interesting than just like, oh, he was this, this, um, predatory gay man. Yeah. So anybody who hasn't seen Gods and Monsters, it stars Ian McKellen, as James Whale, it's the end of his life. Um, Whale ended up, he died in the 50s. Um, he actually drowned himself in his swimming pool. Um, and uh, this is this is a movie about like kind of the final, final days of James Whale. And he befriends a gardener who's played by 
Brendan Fraser, who is not gay. And um, there are some some times where it's like you see you, you kind of feel like whale is is putting the moves on him. But then he'll like back off. No, 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 I'm not trying to do that. So there's just some of that where it's like a little bit of are they trying to suggest this? Are they trying to just make us think? I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't decide. I wish you would you would watch it so we could talk about it more. But um, I just I don't remember thinking that so much back when I first saw the movie a few years ago. But this time around watching it, I don't know. I was just like, I'm not not sure I'm comfortable with this portrayal. So my my memory is that it does not paint whale in a particularly uh, sympathetic light. Yeah, it it really doesn't. doesn't. it does sort of treat him as like I say this predatory at some level or desperate right um Mm -hmm. desperate to make a connection with someone that he's he's failing to make a connection with right um and and that it it does kind of use his kind of the decline of his career um in the in the 1940s and, and then obviously before his death uh as as sort of like as it seems to use his sexuality as an, as the explanation for that. That's yeah. my memory. Again, I yeah, very much so. Liar. Very much so. And I mean, they're definitely he's not just he's not a monster through the whole movie or anything like that. And like, there's definitely a lot of time where you you really get to feel this this uh, sympathy and a little bit of empathy uh, for him. He is all alone. He you know he's lonely. He's kind of isolated. He's he's cut off. He's not in his relationship anymore. Um, and he's alone and he's looking for connection wherever he can find it. What I struggled with was just how often it feels like he's just kind of like one of the first things that happens is he's agreed to sit down for an interview with this young guy who ends up later getting a job as an assistant for, um, um, I think DeMille or somebody. And, um, anyway, so so whale's whole thing is like yeah i'll answer any question you want but for every question i answer you have to remove a piece of clothing and the guy wants the interview so he's willing to do it but it's just like wait is this from real life because if it is then that's one thing but if they're just making this up for the movie i have some problems so i guess i need to just do some more research i have a feeling that that is not from real life (laughs) yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) so that's why i was not Mm-hmm. thrilled with it <laughs> so anyway great performances ian mckellen and brendan Fraser are very very good mm-hmm. um but yeah i just i did not i did not love i don't remember loving it before either but this time around i very much definitely was like i do not love this movie <laughs> so anyway uh yeah any other things that you have been watching this week or have you just been watching <laughs> james whale movies I've been watching a lot of James Whale movies. I, I do have to say all of these films, I including The Old Dark House, actually, are are all available for streaming. They um, are. In in various in various ways. I think um Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and the Invisible Man are all on are all on Criterion. Uh, and they're Peacock. All on, they're mm-hmm. all on Peacock. Uh and I believe they're also all on Tubi, including the Old Dark House. So you can watch. So these films are available to view in very good like prints as well. These mm-hmm. are not like, you know, public domain um, kind of crappy prints with bad audio. These right. these are like very well restored prints. And so, you know, if you haven't seen any of these films, definitely go and watch them. If you have seen them, watch them again, because they're a lot of fun. And most they're like, I think the longest one is Bride of Frankenstein. It's an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You spend more time. 
like you could watch all of these in the same time you could watch half a season of you know stranger things so. exactly <laughs> exactly i did get to see the new hellraiser uh, i think i'm gonna write a review of it so i won't go into too much detail nice. but if you liked the original Hellraiser. I think you will like this one. Um, I think it does some really great things with kind of the story, the Cenobites, the um, the whole the whole concept that kind of Barker introduces in in the nineteen eighty seven film, and and does some some fascinating things with uh, the whole the whole concept as um, as actually a metaphor for addiction, and uh, and that in itself I think is is a really interesting direction for it to go. It's also just just gross hmm. um very very gooey horror film but <laughs> but in a good way like i don't think they go over the top with it uh it's it's extreme enough but without being like off-putting particularly cool. so i i do recommend it that's available on hulu cool uh i have two reviews that are up on the site now for um triangle of sadness the new ruben oslin film and uh, that is very much an eat the rich movie. Uh, if you like those, I am really happy. This is a genre now. Um, and this one, it's it's long. Be prepared. It is a long movie. Um, a lot of people feel like the third act kind of is where it, it really strays. I think that it spends too much time to getting to the third act. But I think that's really where the movie shines. So uh, everyone's opinion is very different on this one. Um, but it's funny it's there's a very gross sequence that lasts about 15 minutes and it's increasingly horrifying and also hilarious um so yeah really really good film and i also reviewed amsterdam which was a very not good film and i probably enjoyed writing that review more than i should have i'm not someone who enjoys writing negative reviews of movies unless the director is you know david o russell Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, David O. Russell. Damn fuck right. Yeah. Anyway, um, I guess programming note next week, we'll not have a new episode because I will be in Virginia at the Middleburg Film Festival. So um, there will be more reviews and stuff written, lots of written content coming to our Yay. website because of that. So, yeah. So Yay. I'm so excited. I am so excited. But we're also going to have a bonus episode soon. We're still waiting to find out what's going to win. But there's one film that is uh, just running away with it. So that's probably going to be what we go with. <laughs> Which also makes me happy, to be honest. I know. Honestly, I feel like we sort of weighted it in this direction. Just like, we're just going <laughs> to nudge, nudge the pole a little bit in this direction. <laughs> You know, honestly, I mean, a lot of times when we do these bonuses, I'm like, I don't really necessarily care, but I'll, I'll always be like, I kind of hope it's this one. Uh, this month, I really don't care. I'm happy with any of the four. Whatever wins, I will be just just delighted to talk about. So, yep. Anyway, uh, I guess that's going to wrap things up then for this week. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sounds cool sounds good yeah. sounds good yeah so so we're going to be back not next week but the week after correct yeah um and we'll it'll still be october so we'll still be talking about spooky movies it's gonna be great um Yay. we would like to thank everyone who supports the show particularly our patrons who really do help keep the lights on and they are ali brian connor estefania heather james kathleen Cariotta, mason Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. 
Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to become a patron yourself and get access to things like our bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame and subscribe. Uh, we also have our Zazzle store. There are no new products there. So if you've been there anytime in the last couple months, it still looks the same. But if you haven't been there, go check it out. Zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. Get a t-shirt, get a mask. Even though nobody's caring if you wear masks anymore, you should still wear them, especially during holiday travel season. So uh and our ko-fi is co-fi.com slash citizen dame if you feel like lending a little bit of support but don't want to subscribe and don't need merch in your house um and of course you can find us the website where we have all of our written reviews and stuff coming is citizendamepod.com and you can email us like Shakita did citizendamepod at gmail.com we're also on social media twitter instagram citizen name pod and letterboxd at citizen name we are available individually too lauren where are you i'm on twitter instagram and letterboxd at lh business and i am on twitter instagram and letterboxd at karen m peterson so that is it for this week thank you so much and we will catch you next time bye yeah what's all this keep back there Keep back, me. Do you know who you're talking to? I give you a last chance to leave me alone. Give me a last chance. You've committed assault, that's what you've done, and you can come along to the station with me. Come along now, come quietly, unless you want me to put the handcuffs on. Stop where you are. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, all right. Come on. Get hold of him. Lock him up. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am. And what I am! <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Huh? How do you like that, eh? <laughs> <laughs>